this is a podcast that's a recovery podcast. And what we talk about here is all things recovery or lack thereof, depending on who you are and how you roll. Uh, but, you know, I ain't judging. But this today my special guest is Ann Fisher. Uh, she is all the way on the East Coast. She's in which part of Massachusetts? Western Massachusetts. Western Massachusetts. Welcome to the corner, Ann. Thank you. Ann's a colleague in the field. She's a... Uh, She's kind of a samurai. But anyway, that's just my opinion and maybe others too. Um, So, Anne, usually we like to delve into your past and kind of just figure out where you grew up, where you were born, where you grew up, and and then we'll get into the other stuff, and then we'll get into the recovery part. Um, So who's Anne Fisher? Like, where were you born? Um, So I was born in Haydenville, Massachusetts, uh, population about 2,500. Parents still live there. It's a wonderful place to be. Um, I live 10 minutes away now in Northampton, Massachusetts, um, raised in a middle-class, wonderful family. Um, my older brother has been a police officer since he was born. He's still a cop now of about 18 years. He's great. Um, he's out in the Boston area. Um, I had, I have a deceased younger brother who died at age 12 of brain cancer. Um, always part of my story, mm-hmm. but yeah, so that's, I mean, that's how I grew up here. I went through school. I attended some college, worked in ER for nine years. ER? Like just at a regular hospital or something? Yeah, I worked at the local, at our local ER here. Okay. So growing up like in high school, junior high school, all that stuff, like was there, did you have a normal childhood? Did you have siblings? Yeah. So I, I, I feel like I had a very normal childhood. Um mm-hmm. My mother worked for the VA um, and my father owned a logging company and he's a truck driver also. So it's a pretty normal upbringing um, other than the fact that my younger brother was diagnosed at 17 months when I was about six or seven years old with brain cancer terminal, Mm -hmm. Um, lived to be 12 years old before he passed. I was 17 at the end of my high school year. So that was kind of hard and kind of set me on this path of, not necessarily destruction because I have a wonderful family support, but I was definitely partying more than I should have, drinking more than I should have, didn't really care about college. Um, my older brother was very set on his career to be a police officer, um, and he's been very successful doing so. So as the middle child of a you know deceased younger sibling, it was I was a little bit lost, you could say. And so that was kind of, Traumatic, obviously, for you, having losing your brother? Yeah, I think the most traumatic part for me and my family, like, is that um, he, at 17 months, he told us he had two days to live. And then there were, um, you know, he went through chemo and radiation. He lived and then he went, you know, he was in remission. He had another bout of cancer at about age, I think, it eight or so. I'm not sure. But, um, he was in remission again from that. And then age 10, he was diagnosed with a terminal glioblastoma. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had been going to Boston for treatment for him. My parents went everywhere. They went to Texas. They went to uh, the National Institute of Health. They went to Spain, anything they could do to help him live. So oh. at the end, it, it was hard. I mean, it's hard to see a child 12 years old die. We see um, patients all the time in this industry Kind of risking their life playing Russian roulette, and you know, here, like I remember my little brother who would have done anything to live. So, 
you know, that obviously is traumatic and part of my story and made me who I am. Sure. So when also, like when you said you were partying, are we talking like high school partying, like just going out and drinking with friends or what was it? Yeah, it was, it was pretty much going out and drinking with friends. Um, you know, we're from a rural community, so there were a lot of bonfires, a lot of like, you know, drinking in the woods on the weekends, um, things like that. It wasn't it wasn't too dramatic. Um, I experimented with cocaine with a high school boyfriend that I had. Um, wasn't my thing. Um, mm -hmm. I really was, you know, as I was getting a little bit older and like realizing, like when I went into work. It, and the emergency department obviously wasn't doing those things. Then I realized that like, I felt like that was what I wanted to do is like emergency medicine. Mm -hmm. so. And in a, in a town that small, this is the same town that you talked about 2,500 people, right? Um, no. So Haydenville has 2,500 people. I live in oh. Hampton. So we have a pretty large hospital here that's okay. affiliated with Mass General. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, then what happened? Like you said, you didn't really want to go to college. Why? I mean, I went to like our community college. I just wasn't, um, I don't know. I think that I wasn't the best student all the time because I was more socializing with people. Um, mm -hmm. And so I just wasn't, I, I don't know. Some people just don't want to go the route of college, but once I wanted to get into, you know, more of like emergency medicine stuff and what my career path I thought was going to be a nurse doing pediatric oncology. Um, and I, I learned that I don't want to do those, that, that at all. Mm -hmm. Um, so I did some college then, um, I became an EMT. And so I was, you know, working in the trenches in the ER for years, mm -hmm. um, really enjoyed it. Um, saw a lot. Um, and then, more recently, I did go back to school. Um, so, okay. So, when you were doing the, the ER work and all that, did you have like a normal life? The partying was kind of done. Like there was really, you were just living normally. Yeah, I mean, I met my son's father at midget wrestling when I was twenty. Um, <laughs> at the bar. So there's that. Um, <laughs> so we have a fourteen-year-old uh, child. Okay. So we met at Midget Wrestling, and I think once, you know, I, I was pregnant at age 22. And I come from a family that's really, um, has really strong values. And so once I was having a child, it was like, this is when you need to, like, really get yourself together and, like, live a normal life. I was never a person that, like, would come home at night and, like, drink wine, you know, to unwind. Um, it was more my addiction came more after I sustained an injury um, and I was prescribed a ton of opiates and knowing better, like, and I still, you know, it's hard to like talk about those kinds of things as somebody that worked in healthcare because had I had or felt comfortable just asking somebody for help, um, I don't think that my life would have led to where it did. Although I'm grateful to be where so, I am today. So the injury was uh, some kind of bodily injury that required you to have to resort yeah. to being prescribed opiates. Yeah. And so it, it took a while to recover. Um, also, I think something a lot of women don't talk about, postpartum depression was a huge thing for me. 
Mm -hmm. um, and I was prescribed Valium for that, which is, you know, now we know that isn't the best course of treatment. Sure. Um, but, you know, it was hard to talk about things like that. And, you know, being a new mother and also working full time and things, you know, it just became a really different life for me pretty quickly to go from being young and, you know, partying and having all these friends to being a 22 year old parent. You had, to, you had to grow up really fast. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so then the medications that they were prescribing you, was it mostly opiates? Was there any Xanax or anything like that in the mix? Any kind of uh, benzodiazepines? So it was, it was all opiates. I mean, they would prescribe, you know, like the oxycodone, you know, the five, three twenty fives, but then they would prescribe like, the 20 milligram, just straight oxycodone on top of it for mm -hmm. breakthrough pain. And I started realizing like once I wasn't in pain anymore, like physically, I was still in this emotional pain. So I continued to take the medication. Mm -hmm. And I just, I remember vividly when I tried to stop because I like ran out or something and I was just like, I felt like I was going to die. I felt like deathly sick. Um, How fast do you think you developed a dependency towards it, both emotionally and physically? Like, was oh, it, almost, it almost instantly? Almost instantly, because it, like with a pill, like giving giving me a pill that like numbed everything out, not mm -hmm. only the pain, but also the trauma of working in a place like an emergency department where, you know, you, you do see some good, but most of it is not. Um, and so when you have to do what we have to do to save lives in an emergency department like that, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we've got five college campuses around. There was a lot of trauma, a lot of, you know, we just saw, we would see a lot. And so what that also allowed me to do is kind of block out that pain too, and not remember that. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm giving CPR to a three month old baby that passes away. And then the next, you know, 6am rolls around and I'm going home and making my two year old breakfast. So it's like, how do you kind of go from one to the other? So it helps with not only like my physical pain, but my emotional pain. Did you prior to this, I mean, minus the partying that you did whenever you did, like when you were younger, I think that like partying is what a lot of adolescents do when they're in high school and all that. And some mm -hmm. college students obviously party too, but like, yeah. did you already have a, an, an addictive personality? Do you think like, I mean, some people get, into an accident and they, they get prescribed pain medication. And so they take it as directed and then they don't take it anymore. But like, do you think like you had like the addictive brain to where like you, you just felt it and you're like, Oh my God, this is everything. I need more of this. Yeah. I mean, when I was in my late teens, when I, when I actually did go to college, I was probably like 18, 19. I went to community college. Uh, I couldn't focus in class. And so my primary care doctor prescribed me Adderall like they do like candy. Mm -hmm. um, and I started taking that and I was like, wow, I can function. Like, this is great. Um, you know, I can function, but I have no emotions. Mm -hmm. um, my father is an alcoholic. He got sober when I was about six years old. So I don't really remember much of that. Um, it doesn't run on my mother's side at all, but um, yeah, definitely like, you know, shopping, money. I always had to have, have the best cars, the best clothes, the best shoes, the best bags, everything. So mm -hmm. it wasn't just about like a pill or something like that for me. It was whatever would fill that void that I needed to fill at the time. 
Sure. So this is this is a really interesting thing that you just brought up as far as the Adderall goes. So like I've worked in the field of addiction for almost 14 years now, right? Almost my whole entire sobriety. And um, aging yourself there. <laughs> well, you you had a baby at 22 and your kid's 14, so you aged yourself earlier. But okay, we won't go. I'm there. 36. Thank you very much. Okay, and you look good for your age. You look great. You look like you should be right where you're at. I know. Thank you. Do I look like I'm 50? Uh, you look like 52. <laughs> this girl, we, we'd be joking all the time together. Okay, so with that said, back to the Adderall. Uh, how do I say this? Do you wish that the doctor would have given you an alternative rather than the Adderall for to be able to focus better? I wish that the doc, my provider would have um, told me what that I was being prescribed legal meth. It is legal meth. It's yeah. it's medical medical meth. I wish that she would have told me the side effects and things like that instead of, you know, and I would see this all the time. Like I worked with an amazing group of physicians in the ER. Um, can't say enough good things about them. But when it comes to like the primary care doctor that I was seeing, it was like, well, what do you need? You know, you can't focus. Here's a prescription for this. And when that did work and made me focus, but also made me not sleep for three days, or eat and like. Wait, were you were you abusing it or were you using it as directed? No, I was using it. Well, back then I was using it as directed. As directed, yeah. Yeah, but you couldn't sleep even using it as directed. No, on thirty milligrams of extended release daily because, like, my body. I don't know that I necessarily had ADHD. You know, it was like, well, you can't focus, and here's some symptoms. So instead of trying something that was like a non-addictive medication that. Mm you know, we can use like even like a Stratera or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just like, here's this prescription for Adderall. This will help you get through school and do your work. It wasn't really prescribed or like told to me like the long-term effects of that medication. And the, and the dependency that can come out of like eventually, you know, the, the, the addictive dependency that one can obtain as a result of using it in regularly. Yeah. And I, I like, my face was breaking out. I looked like I was like a mess or something. Like I was like, my face is breaking out like scabs on my face. Well, you, well, you kind of were on meth. I mean, it, it's, it's just yeah. like, it's cleaned it's like, up meth. It changes <laughs> you like, like biophysically. Like I used to go to the gym back then every single day and mm. I stopped going to the gym because I was short of breath. So there were like mm. all of these kind of side effects that I didn't expect. However, I wanted to be successful in school. So like I was trying to balance it. And I trusted in my provider when I was like 18 years old that mm -hmm. this is the medication I should be taking. They wow. have out here in California, they have uh, asked me in a couple of different colleges and like universities to come and speak with professionals in the field, some therapists, some addictionologists, and then some people that have like hands-on experience, like actual people that were addicted to come and talk to people in college campuses about um, you know, uh, kids that are not kids anymore, young adults that are prescribed Adderall or the ones that get into opiates and things like that. So and for me, what's interesting is uh, the way it like the way it works, like a lot of little kids that are super hyper get addicted Adderall or Ritalin. I mean, it was Ritalin back in the day. I believe it's Adderall now and maybe Vyvanse and things like that, but to calm them down. But like for the adult, it's to help them focus or hyper focus for that matter and be able to be productive in, in like a scholastic setting. Right. But I have seen, and I've, and this is a hot topic because people will argue with me about this. The fact that yeah. um, 
uh, it should be prescribed to certain people so that they can focus better. But what I've seen in the rehab setting, especially like when I've worked like on the front lines, been in groups and, mm-hmm. and talked to people and like really got their, their backstory of who they were, uh, a lot of them that become full-blown heroin addicts, fentanyl addicts, meth addicts at one time in their life, in their childhood, were prescribed Ritalin, Adderall, you know, these stimulants, which... I believe that this this is this is what I feel that this is kind of like where the addiction could have uh, the onset like it was the the beginning of 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 what had become something to where they were always depending on something to make them feel good. I've also worked very closely with people who come into my care that are just primary Adderall addicts like they're just addicted to Adderall they've been prescribed it for years they couldn't see life in any other way and then and then they they have been abusing it for years and years to even like prescribed or or they resorted to like finding it in other ways like whether it be the dark web or a dealer or something like that but it most certainly is um so you i mean that's where it started with like with Adderall for you and then it became uh, uh an accident or something like that that happened to where you had an injury and and then the opiate so as far as the opiates like how long did that addiction go like was it carrying on for yeah so i was prescribed adderall from age 18 or 19 until um about i mean i think about 27 ish so i was on it for a very long time wow um yeah and i also worked overnights in the last four years that i was in the er and so like how do you you know i had a toddler my partner worked during the day and so it's like, how do you, how do you function and do all of that? As much as family support that I had, it's still like, I want to raise my child, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, like, so I was doing that and then I was prescribed, I had a two year, so it started at age 26 with the injury and, um, I was finally arrested, which saved my life on when I was 29 and December 12th of um, 2014. Do you mind elaborating on why you were arrested? Um, I'll go into it a little bit. Um, You know, there was a lot that went behind it. Um, I would have never done the things that I had done. Um, I'm like a retired street pharmacist, if you may. Um, I would not have done those things had I been in a sober state of mind. Um, I was so addicted myself that like I had to do anything and my family didn't know, my parents didn't know, nobody knew that I had a problem. Um, and like, I think that was the hardest thing. Like had somebody- How did been, you hide it? I mean, I am I guess I'm just really good at those kinds of things. <laughs> you mastered the double life. <laughs> you um, had mastered, or so you thought. Yeah, I mean, but then- it like so um i there was some prescription fraud there um and so when my house was raided um there was nothing found in my house or anything but um i was charged with quite a few charges to just try and like get anything to stick i guess mm-hmm. um and you know i'm it t- it took me a long time but i'm very grateful for being arrested the police officer that drove me to um, the police like station where I had to be held as a female, um, which I was only there for 40 minutes because like I wouldn't even sit down because I was 
wearing citizen jeans and it was gross. Um, but like the police officer that drove me there actually like knew um, some of my family and had this conversation with me about how well I was raised, how she knows my family. And she's like, let this be a lesson to you. Do whatever it takes to get sober. You're not this person. She's like, this is going to be a really hard process for you, but you can get through it. Because at that time, my only, because my family didn't know. I'm like, how am I going to tell my family that I'm even addicted to drugs? Never mind, I just got arrested. How am I going to tell my brother that, who is such a respected police officer? You know, so it was like so hard to um, like comprehend anything other than me like ending my own life, honestly, at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, my best friend at the time's mother actually um, blocked me in my driveway when, after I told my mom. And she's, you know, she's been going to AA for years. Um, her name is Piper and she's wonderful. And she blocked me in my driveway. I had, I don't even know about AA. My parents were like, you don't even look like a drug addict. Um, I was like, I don't even know what a drug addict looks like. Like, you know, I'm sorry, mom. Like, you know, so they didn't know what to do with me, but Piper did. So she had, she took me into my first AA meeting, um, which was a women's meeting in a church basement coming soon with about 10 older women. Mm -hmm. And I just remember like crying because I had never identified with people as much as I did then. Um, you know, here in Western Mass, we have about 87 public detox beds. I had to wait three days on, a, on like a call list. My family knew nothing about like private treatment. Thank mm -hmm. God. Um, but I had to wait three days to go to detox. So, uh, and I was detoxing from benzodiazepines also. Mm -hmm. So I did go to a public detox. I was there for 10 days. Um, I went cold turkey except phenobarbital um, because they were worried about risk of seizure. But I didn't have, I refused to take Suboxone because I didn't want to be addicted to something else. And something that I really got out of that detox um, was that this wonderful counselor, Nancy, told me, like, do not make friends here. Like, you know, don't make friends here. Um, and also, it's like she would talk to me about, like, the importance of my recovery and not just relying on another. Like, I believe in MAT completely for patients who overdose multiple times. I'm a complete supporter of it. Mm -hmm. However, like, in my situation, I felt like I could do it cold turkey. Like, as long as I'm in a med like a medical setting, mm -hmm. you know, like there wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, how it was at a place like Swift river that I helped um, open back in 2016. Like we didn't mm -hmm. have that clinical support. It was literally an inpatient hospital. So I'm very grateful for it. Um, Your opiate addiction didn't transfer into other forms of, opiates like heroin or no okay exactly. so it, it was just straight medicated like medication i would take like so when i was in detox also in that unit people would be like you're not even like a real drug addict because i would take like a quarter of a perk 30 every two hours to not be sick and i was like i am a drug addict i'm just way smarter than you so like, we can have that conversation um <laughs> but yeah no i, I was in if I didn't have the finances to purchase those medications, I feel like I would have been 
in the streets, like shooting dope. Like, I don't know where my life would have led. Mm-hmm. Like, thank God, you know, cause you know, thousands of dollars a week, you know, perk thirties are that at that time were 25 to $30 each. Mm-hmm. And now it's all press fed. And also people don't even have the chance to recover. It's right. just dying, you know? So this is also an interesting topic. So when, these the fact that there are people out there now or have been for a few years actually um youngsters some that aren't so young getting their hands on and let's not even we won't go into the fact that some of the stuff is pressed with fentanyl because that obviously is stuff that they're finding um in other areas but i'm talking like prescribed medications Mm -hmm. kids are smoking this stuff like straight up smoking pills uh, you never took it to yeah, that level. Them. No, yeah. I would, I literally would just swallow them. I like, I guess since I like didn't have friends that did drugs, like I had like mom friends that like went to the park with me and stuff. And I was like, you know, going to Disney on ice and stuff. Like I was like a normal mom right. with like a normal career and a beautiful home. And, you know, it was, it, it was a huge secret, but had I found that like group of like, people that were doing that, I don't know what I would have done. I probably, I probably would have done some of that stuff, I guess. Like, And you know, it's interesting. You bring up like moms. There's, I mean, there's a lot of mothers that are, you know, like housewives that, that ended up, end up becoming uh, prescribed Xanax, for example. And, mm-hmm. and they take it to take the edge off to be able to feel better. But then eventually they, they develop a dependency upon it. And, then they wonder why their moods are so up and down and like, why, why do it? Like I, I've now I can't feel right unless I'm on this. Right. So like I'm, I'll take an extra one or I'll take a few extra ones and things like that. So now looking back, like, do you, did you have any other friends that were uh, caught up in, in, in any kind of addiction that were no. those mothers or were you the only one? I was the only one. I had friends that drank and I, I mean, I drank at this candlelight party in 2012 and it was a disaster. And so like after that, like I did not want to drink alcohol anymore. Um, But like, I wasn't like, oh, I'm sober. I just didn't want to be messy because I'm I'm a very like type A person. And like, I want things a certain way. No, never. (laughs) But no, I didn't. Or I didn't even know if they did. But since I have gotten sober and... You know, my story, since I'm from such a small town, like, you know, like it it became a little bit public, but the good part about this and the police officers, fire department, people that I worked with that reached out to me after would hear me speak at meetings and stuff would Mm -hmm. be like, oh my God, like, it's so good to see you. We had no idea what happened to you. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I just wish that that stigma in healthcare could, you know, be I don't even know how to like word it appropriately right now but I wish that there was more that we could do to um you know you can't like ending a stigma is not something we're going to be able to do just why do you why do you think there's a stigma what why like um I mean even coming so working in the ER and I'll speak for myself Mm -hmm. um the patients would come in and they were frequent flyers what do they want they've got back pain they've got dental pain they were here yesterday they have a primary Med care seeking. doctor, of course. Yeah. But like, you know, having sympathy for that when it's like we have patients coming in in cardiac arrest. So how do I go from having to deal with patients and or like, you know, at a QMI or like a stroke? That's my priority. Mm-hmm. And so when patients would come in med seeking, 
I know that it was hard for our doctors who are so busy to have that conversation with them. And a lot of them are very good about it. Um, like, Hey, we've seen you here multiple times. Mm -hmm. You need to go to a dentist. You need to go to your primary care doctor. I'll give you five or 10 perks that to hold you over, but this is it. Mm -hmm. Um, and that led to the prescription monitoring program, um, that I worked with, with, you know, the, the DA that was prosecuting me. Um, I worked on that team, um, to help just form like a prescription monitoring program. So providers could look up where patients are getting these prescriptions from because mm -hmm. they're getting them from multiple prescribers. And so when ER docs can access like that patients are getting, you know, prescriptions all over, cause we didn't have that back in that, those days. Right. So we didn't know that they had just gotten 30 Percocet from Franklin hospital down the street. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And it, I mean, yeah. So I had a stigma myself, you know, a kid came in like missed his methadone dose at 6am. And I was like, well, that's nice. I had to get up at 430 and feed my baby, bring him to my parents' house. And like, now I've got to work all day. So do I feel bad? I mean, no, but like today, would I absolutely, you know, it's, it's like, we all live different lives. And I think I, I've definitely learned a lot of empathy working in this. Sure. I think through your, through your own struggles, you also just like, suddenly learn that, you know, there's, there's gotta be compassion for people that, that do develop an addictive lifestyle and we don't just view them as like drug addicts. Like they're just so like, there's no hope for them. That's how, and that's, that's why a lot of stigmas um, exist is because people just view you a certain way. I remember when I had gotten in trouble way back in the day before I even wanted to be sober, um, the police had raided my house for other stuff, took me in, Booked like me what? like what Pej? methamphetamines cooking it that's what they thought i was gonna do i actually was going to but like i hadn't got to it yet but still did you blow, up, felt... your house at all? <laughs> did you blow up your house at all cooking meth no no no, no i didn't get that far luckily <laughs> uh, or i wouldn't be here uh but you know they they were telling me i remember i was getting booked for as a as a drug offender in my part of town and the the sheriff the way she talked to me she's like so how long you been a doper? I'm like, what kind of a word is that? That's such a like sheriff term, right? I'm like, yeah. what are you talking about? Oh, you like the methamphetamine. Well, you know what they put in that stuff? And I'm like, what? Rat poison and all kinds of other chemicals like red phosphorus. I'm like, great. Yeah. Give, and my, my head's like, great, give me more. Like, I don't care. Like, that's why I love this shit because it gets me going. It helps me maintain like my addictive lifestyle. But, you know, I, I definitely felt looked down upon rather than, any kind of compassion these days they bust you and it's like a slap on the wrist. If even that, at least in California, like there's uh, they're more lenient. They there's more understanding. People are getting more rehabilitated. So I, I wanted to ask you, like when you ended up going to that detox and all, was that your one and only time of going to treatment? Yeah. One and done. Just like my kid one and done. And you were how old then? I was, uh, Jesus, 29, 29. And you got sober at 29. Yeah. And then uh, how long were you in rehab? Um, I was there for 10 days because of the risk of seizure, because of I, I had really high blood pressure coming off. I, first of all, I lied to them about using Xanax because like I was just terrified. And it's funny that you said that about like the dope fiend stuff, because I was in an ER at Berkshire Medical Center. And like as a person working in an ER, like I never expected to go to an ER mm -hmm. and we called the the doc came in and he's like, Oh, you're dope sick. I was like, you're dope sick. Like what? Are you 
<laughs> you're telling me I'm dope sick. Like I'm looking at the scribe. I'm like, don't put that in my char. I'm not dope sick. Right. Um, but like I, you know, it was like I was there for 10 days and I um you know, I did a phenobarbital taper and then I was referred out to a public IOP called and it's called clinical support options here in Northampton. Mm -hmm. They were wonderful. Um I continued going to the um, weekly recovery meeting, mm -hmm. even though it was like, you know, people are, it's like an er early recovery meeting. I went for a whole year. Um, you know, was I, it like an outpatient that you were in? Yeah. So I went, so my parents actually moved me out of my home in Northampton. Um, and so I was, I was so furious, but like they have, they have like an upstairs of their home, which is like an, why were you furious? Cause you wanted to go back home my house. Like, you know, I'm like, you can't do this to me. Like, what are you talking about? But like, I was just so selfish at that point and not seeing the full picture there. Mm -hmm. And I was so isolated that I needed my family. Like Good. my aunt and uncle and cousin live next door. My parents still like, I love them so much. And I didn't have that. Um, and I, I really needed to be around them more than I knew. Mm-hmm. And so I was fortunate enough that like my brother rented my house and then another one of my friends rented my house until I was able to, I think it was, I just moved back into my home in Northampton in 2019. Um, and, you know, it was like, I was mad because I, I like, I would go to meetings. So they're like, go to your 90 and 90. And I was, I was scared, you know, to go to those meetings and running into people that I knew thinking they're judging me, but like at the same time, I'm like, we're all here for the same reason. Right. Um, but yeah, I did, I did way more than 90, 90. I was going to like two meetings a day most days. Mm -hmm. um, and my parents luckily and my partner allowed me to not work for those two years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like having 17 felonies and 15 misdemeanors, like on your record, isn't really that easy to get a job. But. Oh my God. That's a... <laughs> a lot oh my god you're quaffed okay yeah. but like honestly you know my first like when i went to work with addiction campuses mm -hmm. um i had been on pretrial probation they got my quarry back and they were the they really went to bat for me because they got to know me and my strengths mm -hmm. and my director of operations scott kenfield was able to like write a letter stating to why they're willing to employ me, even though I had those charges, even though they were going to be quaffed in two years, there mm -hmm. was still that risk that if I, you know, failed drug tests or anything, um, you know, I could be going away for 30 years and never seeing like, you know, that was my fear. Like, am I ever going to hug my son again? Like he's my world. Mm -hmm. like, parents are my world. So it's like, I, I would have done anything at that point, but I was so grateful for them to give me that opportunity um, and really prove myself. But yeah, like, you know, but now so when you got sober, did you, it, had you, if you didn't have all the felonies, would you have wanted to go back and work in the ER or was it because that the fact that you had the felonies, you thought mm -hmm. that you weren't going to be employable, but like no one's going to hire you. So you went in the direction of, working in was addiction camps as a treatment center back East. Yeah. So, I mean, they're national, they were a national treatment center or company company based out of Nashville. They own Treehouse in Texas where mm -hmm. um, Micah Petty obviously worked. Um, it's how we met. 
Um, they also had Turning Point in Mississippi, the Bluffs in Ohio, and then Swift River in the Berkshires in Mass, which is a facility that I helped with a team of 33 open. And then we eventually expanded to 112 beds private mm. there. Um, but um, no, so the ER, I, I would still have, um, like I could hear the ambulance bell still in my head sometimes mm -hmm. because you never know what's coming. And like, I, I thrive off chaos <laughs> a lot. Mm -hmm. um, however, it's not always good for you. And I had to like, I developed this fear of like, I can't have people sitting behind me. Like, you know, there's certain things that I've had to identify within my like PTSD that from working in that field for so long, mm -hmm. it's a very burnt out field. I worked there through the avian flu crisis, nothing like COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't even know how they're doing it. Um, I pray for them, but it's just, you know, it's, it was just a very toxic environment for people. Mm -hmm. Um, because like we were essentially a family, especially overnight because, you know, we're on our own. We ha had to respond to all the codes at the hospital responding mm -hmm. to a code white in a nursery when we can't even get through the doors because they forgot to unlock them. That mm -hmm. sense of like, hope, like, you know, you want to go save a baby and you can't like, they forgot to unlock the doors. Like I couldn't feel that anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also developed a sense like I couldn't have people that close to me because I was afraid. Um, and so, yeah, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I didn't want to do that. Um, you know, it, it just that that kind of like fell into my lap. And I'm super grateful for everything I learned there and the wonderful people I met there. But it's, you know, not my thing. Hmm. So now what, what are you doing? I mean, as far as obviously you're, you're still working in, in treatment and you're helping people get into treatment nationally. This is what you do. This has become your forte. Like you, there's no looking back at trying to go work in healthcare unless you're, this is, this is the type of healthcare that you, you've kind of found your niche, right? Yeah. I mean, so I started out, um, you know, at Switch River as a detox program director, mm -hmm. um, I was very into like the licensure piece of it, um, you know, and then becoming the director of admissions on site. Um, I really thrived in that position because I do like chaos. I like being able to coordinate that chaos of, you know, bed Tetris when we're absolutely full mm -hmm. and really it was like air traffic control is what I did. Mm -hmm. I came out into business development because so many people locally were reaching out to me for help that I couldn't do both. Mm -hmm. And so um, it made more sense for you to move out to business development and then nationally. Um, but I miss working one-on-one -on -one with patients. Um, you know, a goal, like my true goal um, really is to do some, like, I don't even like to talk about this, <laughs> but um, I'm really interested in doing like forensics, behavioral analysis in like um like bridgewater state hospital which is a state hospital for the criminally insane where did that interest originate um that's a, that's a hell of a that's crazy awesome like why that i feel like i read people all the time because mm -hmm. like 
you know, when you're working in a, in a treatment center in like a leadership position, and you're trying to get to the bottom of things. Like you mm -hmm. really have to read into people and like what's going on. It's been hard since COVID because like, you know, too, we're yeah. on the phones a lot. It's harder to read people through the phone. Um, but I, you know, I, a lot of people in my family have been in law enforcement and things like that. So um, I, I don't know why it appeals to me so much. I feel like I really like reading people and understanding the depth of like how they became this way. And like, if there's things that we can do to, you know, it, it, people suffer in those situations too. Mm -hmm. If there's things that we can do and learn from their situations, why not? It doesn't have to be a terrible existence. That is one of the best things I've heard in a long time. And I totally relate. One of the reasons I say that is I think we're a lot alike. I think that's why we be vibing because we're both eight type personalities. We both had our own personal struggles with addiction or whatever happened or the traumas that happened for us in our lives. But I, I say this often, like in, in, in my recovery process, like I love to learn people. Yeah, I love to learn all different types of people. I've gotten past um, viewing people through a certain scope, like to where they're like, I don't like that person because he's this way or that way. I needed to get out of my own way and start seeing what it is about me that doesn't mm -hmm. like certain people and just mm -hmm. putting that aside and actually wanting to see what about that person is it that I don't like and why is that? And then on top of that, what about them could I like or what about them stands out? What are their strengths? How can I empower that person to to hopefully change their lives? I have a lot of friends and a lot of people that are chronic relapsers. And, yeah. and some of them appear to, like some would deem them as people that are beyond human aid. And perhaps they truly are. I mean, if they, they I mean, some of them may never get better. Some of them are on, on the brinks of being completely shot out. Some of them are fucking shot out. Some of them like are well on their way and let's hope that they don't become shot out. But like, I, I believe miracles happen. And sometimes when I, when I often hear their stories or they tell me bits and pieces, or if they tell me the whole shebang, like exactly like what's happened to their, in their lives, like it all makes sense. I'm like, fuck, really? Like yeah. that happened to you? Like I would be getting loaded too. But like, I also want to give them hope and let them know, like, you don't have to live that way anymore. Like you can turn it around. We're here for you whenever you're ready. Like I'm, I'm always here for you. And it's one of the, a lot of people don't know that I'm an interventionist. Like, uh, do you do interventions too? Me too. Thank you very yeah. much. If you would have read my like um, signature on our emails, maybe you would know that. I'm not sure. I read it, but I just want people to know. I was trying to just kind of like slick that way. And I, I know you're an interventionist, but like, I, I think some of the most powerful experiences for us as interventionists happen like right when we're in it like forget about the the, the pre-intervention's great putting together like the family or the loved ones or the friends that come together to help their loved one but like when you're in it and the, the amount of emotion that goes into it and the fact that like we have to keep neutral there like we can't start crying with the family right mm -hmm. but there's a lot of fucking emotion and a lot of people will ask me i'm sure they ask you too a lot of times like i don't know how you do it like there's every it's probably day. Not, it's not cut out for people. It's not cut out for everybody. A lot of people can't really handle that. But I think like after being trained and, and, and being on the front lines and doing it enough, you start to read a room depending on where you, you go. And right the second you walk in, you know pretty much what you're in for. And then sometimes just watching like the way it, it kind of takes form, like not everybody's going to 
want to get help right away. But the art of intervention is to be able to intervene on their lives and open up the idea that, listen, now you can't say people don't care about you because people care about you. Right. And, and, and if yeah. they look, they sometimes look at you like, well, who the hell are you? Right. Well, I'm just here just assisting, just trying to help out, trying to try to show like, what do you want to do about your addiction problem? What do you want to do about your alcoholism? That's I'm not, I'm not here for fun. Yeah, exactly. You know, obviously, like you can't and there's no excuses now. Uh, and you have to like word it right and say the right thing so that you don't offend or hurt someone's feelings or tell them Absolutely. like, you know, you don't want them to be like, you know what? Fuck you. Like, get out of this room. I don't want to deal with this guy. Right. I've, I've had people do that. Right. But, I but people do that in the ER all the time. I like, I had a guy like throw a chair at me. I, I just like shut the door and I like called Northampton PD. I'm like, yo, chair just got thrown at me. You mind coming by? Like, <laughs> you know, people like, and I think that's probably where like my interest in this, that kind of like behavioral analysis, like for the, you know, criminally insane or even, at like Shirley Max or something, people who are institutionalized for life. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like there's, people are so angry because of how they're treated a lot. Sure. Um, and so it's like, you don't have, like, it takes a lot more to be mean to people than it does to just be kind. Sure. And I know that like as an assertive woman, I know that sometimes I can come off a little bit like questionable on the niceness. Sorry, I'm trying to like, make you be able to hear me. Um, but I'm only, it's because I'm passionate. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's because I've seen too many people die. I had, I was working with two families in the past three weeks whose children have passed. Right. And so it's not something that I'm, I play with, you know? And it's like, I, I would see patients in the ER all the time. Mm -hmm. Like what made you get to this point where you're slamming your head against the wheel of a stretcher? You right. know, it's like, what like can we like reverse back and like see is this substance use disorder and i would do this even in the detox unit once somebody's detox is this substance use disorder or is this true mental health mm -hmm. and like from here where do we go and that's why i'm grateful to have psychiatric providers within right. you know treatment facilities also that can uh, determine yeah yeah because you know it's like if we can make people more comfortable and live out their life where they are safer for our communities unfortunately you know, like that has to happen. And if you can make it so that people aren't so bitter and angry to be there all the time, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't have to be such a terrible environment. You know, people can thrive in jail. People go to college in jail, mm -hmm. you know, like, I don't know. I, I tend to work better with males for some reason. Like um, mm -hmm. I, I do work a lot with women, like mothers in recovery too, but um, I feel, I feel like I'm more effective with males because I do have like a more masculine energy. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like, you know, I've gone into the section 35 unit here and spoken and brought in, in great speakers there. Um, but you know, like that's kind of where my passion is kind of going towards, mm -hmm. um, I think it'll be years before I do that because I really do love what I do. Um, but you know, it, it's not like you can't do both, I guess. You're a powerful force. I, I appreciate you coming on here. I want to ask you something before we sign off. You told me like a lot of people ask you to be on their podcasts and sometimes you don't do it. I why, never. Then why did you come on here? Why me? 
Uh, Cause I don't want to get in trouble by like Brandon or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's not why I don't believe that. Um, I see your, I see your drive. I see that you're helping a lot of people. I appreciate that. I don't feel like you're in this for, you know, so many people are in this for like a financial gain. That's not why I'm in this. Um, mm-hmm. And so when people want to bring you on because they think that like whoever they think you are is going to bring more people to refer to them, I'm not doing it. Um, And I feel like with genuine connections with people, like we've spoken and like there's patients that I can't place in California with really difficult policies. Mm -hmm. And you've never said to me, no, I'm not, I I don't have time for that. Right. That to me, I definitely wouldn't be sitting here right now. Just so you know. It's interesting that you you just brought that. I appreciate your kind words. It's really nice coming from you. Like that means a lot, especially coming from you. But I I must say this: this is a trip. Like I went to West Coast Symposium. Like what was it a week and a half ago? And a friend of mine who is actually an interventionist with his partner. The two of them are like the dynamic duo. Two guys that do a lot of interventions. He pulled me aside on one of the nights, and he's like. Hey, I want to talk to you about something. I wasn't going to talk about this publicly, but I don't mind. I really don't mind because I know what I stand for. But he said, I want to ask you something like, you know, uh, earlier today when you were like walking through the hall, there was a guy that was standing and talking to me. And as you walked by, he said, that's Pej. He's a body broker. He works with body brokers. And I, I looked at him and he goes, I just wanted to bring it to your attention. Like, you know, just in case. And I said, dude, like, do you think I'm a body broker? He goes, you know what, Pej? Like, really? We've been accused of that on the ethics page. Me and my partner have been accused of being body brokers. And I go, well, I know you guys. And I know you guys do good work. And I know you're not body brokers. So I, what, what, it's not so much that I'm bothered that somebody would say that to you. But if I was standing in your position and somebody came to me and said that about you, I would question the person. Like I would, I would think that they're perhaps projecting something that they, maybe they have something to hide because if, if we're doing this for the right reasons, just like you said, and it's not just about personal gain, like if somebody goes out and wants to pollute our industry with, with just bullshit jargon, like just stuff that they're pulling out of stuff, you know, I would actually like question the person and say, what, what, why don't you go and say that to Pedge? Why would, you come, why would you come and put that into my head? Because he and the next day he actually did say that to him. And he said, you know, you made me start to question this guy. And like that, that wasn't like, that's not fair. Like what he goes, well, I heard it from somebody else. So it's just people talk, you know, and I think a lot of people see people that are high performers or people that really, truly help a lot of people. And so they're, I, I don't even want to say the word jealous, but like people think to themselves, like because the guy conducts himself this way or looks that way or acts that way or because he's got it a lot of people around him, he must be a body broker. And like truth of the matter is, is if whoever was running their mouth saying that shit really knew on the back end what I do when it comes to real life body brokers and how a lot of places either get put under investigation or shut down or certain people do get uh, in trouble as a result of body body brokering. And a lot of people won't even know that are watching this, like what a body broker is, but it's a person that that pays people to get into treatment or they sometimes get people high or will do certain things to get people into treatment, but that's doing it the wrong way. And so if if only that person knew like the fact that 
I have worked with law enforcement and I won't say who, but they're like the gnarly law enforcement people that really, really go after these people. If they only knew like what I do on the back end and, and I, I, I talk about this often. Like I hate, I hate that type of lifestyle and those types of people, not to say that like they're bad people. I think they're just caught up and they're about that fast money and they're about, you know, living a late, a shady lifestyle and their so-called recovery lifestyle. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, body brokering, by the way, here, Massachusetts, nobody plays that. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I have plenty of connections out here in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as you know, I might be, I might be able to help you with a couple people, mm -hmm. well-known people to get on your podcast, maybe. Sure. Um, but that was, that isn't a thing here. And the bigger thing here is like, we didn't, I didn't even know what a body broker was until like a few years ago. And somebody said to me something about like, I get paid per head in bed. Right. I was like, I don't even know what that means. Like right. I earn a salary and I probably at the end of the day, probably earn like $10 an hour because I work 24 seven. Sure. So, good for you. If you want to go and do that, right. but like don't ever speak to me again. When right. it comes to like our own recovery and going to meetings and things like that. I mean, there's, no way that I would go to a meeting and approach somebody unless they like true, like, you know, I try and keep my own recovery separate from what I do. Mm -hmm. um, of course I'm going to give them my phone number, but if that person needs to go to treatment and they have state funded insurance, I don't care if their parents are millionaires, mm -hmm. they can utilize that state funded insurance or they can walk into the department of transitional assistance and get emergency health and you can go to treatment. Right. For me, that that topic really like hit me hard because I'm not from California or I'm not from Florida. I can't even say Florida. Um, <laughs> but like, like I'm I'm not from that environment, and I'm not from like where the, these like 22 year old grimy kids are out here. Like, let me help you. Yeah. Um, I like I'm used to real professionals that have worked in this industry, have licenses and degrees, and like clinically, like they really truly really care. And I'm so grateful that that's who I learned from. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I've I don't know. I just I like some kid reached out to me one time about like saying that he got paid separately than I did from like what the work I did, and I'm like I have no idea what you're even speaking of. Right. Because this is like so so foreign to me mm -hmm. um and of course i sent it to my boss and i, I was like i don't even know what this means mm -hmm. um but like body brokering out here doesn't happen however you know you go that movie that came out that everybody saw um i actually had that guy on the 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 director of that movie i had him on here yeah i mean the bd rep in there overdosed and died right so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. very sad you know um yeah. but like it like that, that kind of reality, if you ever get the chance to come out to like Massachusetts or like this area, you you will not see that like right. at all because it doesn't like people are just so it doesn't exist out there. It doesn't yeah, exist. It, it doesn't and exist. even, you know, what's crazy is even after Trump signed the ECRA law and made it illegal for people to pay per client to put them into treatment. Yeah. Um, it's still happening. I mean, it's not happening to the, to the, as much as it was back then, but it's still happening. It's happening in California. It's still happening in Florida. Um, so there are, there are people that live in the underbelly of the beast still, but um, I'd love to meet them and have a great conversation with them. Like I'll fly out for that. <laughs> we can make arrangements. I will. 
<laughs> I, I love what you're doing. We're on two different coasts. I know you help a lot of people. I appreciate you. I appreciate you coming out here today. If you, got some, if you got some of those people that would like to be on this podcast now that you've been on and they ask you, well, how does it go down or what do you do and this and that? Here you go. You had it like you've we've touched on so many things and you you help a lot of people. I believe that today, like I think the people that I saw tuned in, a couple of them were this lady said working mothers have a unique challenge in this day and age. So many expectations we put on ourselves. So many expectations from society pills are an easy addiction to hide from our loved ones. Not really something soccer moms talk about and can reach. Um, Rada Spudo said addicts abuse coffee. So stimulants are a given. This gentleman Wu Ming said only watched a little bit, but really like what you guys are doing here. Really like her story too. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I didn't even see any comments. Sorry guys. Oh, you couldn't see the comments. Yeah, I don't, I'm not like, see, since I don't do podcasts, um, <laughs> I'm not used to it. But like, I'm, I'm so happy that if it helps anybody, you know, I'm happy to help anybody. Um, you, you know, wonderful. I didn't. So I appreciate know. you. Thank you for coming on today and have a good rest you. of your day. Thanks for convincing me. We'll be talking soon. You already know that. We better be. Thank <laughs> you. Talk to you later. Bye. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.